the hazards on a piece of equipment when you're starting it up, they don't change daily. They change sometimes hourly or, or by the minute. In some ways, the automation industry has kind of stuck their head in the sand and just said, we don't want to talk about it and we don't really want to come up with a, a better plan for how to deal with it. I think there has to be a better communication mechanism or a better way to handle that kind of risk. Today's episode of the Robot Industry Podcast is brought to you by Canova, a global leader in robotics. Founded in 2006 in Montreal, the company's original mission was to empower individuals with upper body limitations through the use of assistive robots. The company's evolved its products and services. Researchers, medical professionals, governments, businesses, and educational institutions to achieve their innovation goals through strategic partnerships. With over a decade of inspired ingenuity, Canova's solutions are found in industries as diverse as agri-food, healthcare, security, nuclear, hazmat, and of course, advanced manufacturing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Robot Industry Podcast. We're glad you're here, and thank you for subscribing. My guest for this episode is Jeff Werner. Jeff is with Ethos Automation, and he's no stranger to the automation industry and machine building for capital equipment. Jeff's worked with many large systems integrators as team lead in project management. He's held such roles as vice president and general manager and VP and general manager for a packaging automation company. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Jim. I'm really glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad you're here too. And tell me a little bit about Ethos Automation. Yeah, we've uh, we've been around for uh, close to six years now. Uh, we're uh, one of the smaller integrators around, but very rapidly growing. Uh, we're, we spend most of our uh, most of our time in right now in the automotive industry, uh, doing a lot of uh, assembly work. Uh, we do a lot of process development. We do a lot of welding. We're growing quickly and uh, really enjoying uh, this this boom that's happening right now in the automation industry. Jeff, when you and I kind of discussed this idea as a topic for a webinar, I th- I, I thought it was a really cool idea, and we're going to talk about safety today. And then I started thinking about all the issues and it. And it's not just safety with robots, uh, because safety, robot safety is fairly well documented. And it's pretty easy to get up to speed on robot safety. There's conferences, there's lots of experts, lots of opportunity. But robots are just part of the conversation. When you're talking about custom automation systems, you have so many players, so many technologies, such as indexers and conveyors and welders and lasers. Um, you've worked for some pretty awesome machine builders, Jeff, like Ethos and others. Where are you seeing some of the challenges in the automation regarding safety? Well, Jim, you know, if, if you take a step back, you know, 10 years, even 20 years ago, safety and automation was a, was a hardwired thing, right? It was uh, safety relays. It was uh, redundant uh, contacts uh, on door switches and stuff like that. And it was, it was all very, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, hardcore, uh, very difficult to change. And then when uh, programmable safety came along, that brought, you know, a, a whole new level of flexibility to uh, safety systems, uh, connectivity between different devices. While that flexibility and, and connectivity and safety is is amazing, that in itself has brought 
along a whole bunch of different challenges along with it. And to your point, when you're dealing with indexers and conveyors, welders, that kind of stuff, every one of those devices kind of speak their own safety language as well. You know, some of them have... Uh, safety zoning for speed control or, uh, you know, to allow operators to be within, uh, within reach of them while they're, while they're still live. And then, you know, uh, some of them, you know, still have hardwired, uh, interfaces to them. So for an automation company and a, and a controls integrator, you really have to, uh, dig into the details of every single one of those devices and, you know, they're not necessarily the same, you know, across all of them. So your your safety architecture uh, is is different from device to device. And, you know, as things are becoming more and more Ethernet safety based, more and more devices are talking that language. But it's still it doesn't mean even that the safety code itself is is universal. So, you know, when you're looking at the challenges uh, that that are hitting the industry with all of this amazing flexibility that's coming along, you know, one one of that one of those issues is there's a huge labor shortage in the automation industry industry right now. Uh, it's hard to find people with more than two or three years of experience. And to be honest with you, if you only have you know two or three years of programming experience uh, for PLCs or robots, you really haven't probably seen much of the safety programming side of of, uh, of that work. What it means is there's fewer and fewer people available that are able to actually manage programming on the safety system. So that in conjunction with uh, the increased flexibility and the constantly evolving architecture of the safety devices means that when we start up machines, there's a there's sometimes a, uh, a a challenge when you're trying to configure this equipment and ensure that the safety system has been verified before the toolmakers go in and start setting up things like uh, pneumatic axes or servo axes and that kind of stuff. So it takes a really high level of coordination now. You know, to be honest with you, it was kind of what I was thinking of when you and I first discussed doing this episode was I think there's a lot of uh, time where the safety system has not been fully verified and yet we have people working on these machines. Like when, by the time these uh, pieces of equipment go to the customer's site, the safety system's been fully verified. Safety program has been locked. Signature has been recorded for, uh, if you're in Ontario, for a PHSR uh, requirements. You know, when we're setting the equipment up, none of that's been verified. So effectively, the controls team, the machine builders at a, at a at an integrator's house, they're not working on a proven or verified safety system. So there's inherent risks that go along with that. I think that's a big deal, and it it seems to go almost like it's undiscussed within the industry that it's just accepted that that part of the business is is inherently dangerous. And it's inherently dangerous to like ethos employees, right? Like this is one of the challenges that I think we're facing, and uh, and, and thank you for kind of bringing it to our attention. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's not just at ethos. It's, no. it's, every, it's every integrator out there. And, and, you know, I've seen some of them deal, some integrators deal with that uh, inherent risk by putting, you know, what they call a, a, a job hazard or a, a machine hazard assessment form, you know, tape it to a whiteboard in front of the machine and make sure that everybody signs it. And, you know, maybe that's a good way to, to cover, you know, the legalities of making sure that employees are aware of the hazards. But in reality, those 
you know, the hazards on a piece of equipment when you're starting it up, they don't change daily. They change sometimes hourly or, or by the minute. As uh, we're starting to bring new devices online, the program team is is configuring additional safety devices. It really is a big deal. And I think that in some ways, the automation industry has kind of stuck their head in the sand and just said, we don't want to talk about it. And we don't really want to come up with a, a better plan for how to deal with it. I think there has to be a better communication mechanism or a better way to handle that kind of risk. And of course, being a machine builder, you're really, you're really good at handling risks, but this is kind of a, a new level of risk, right? It's like before we even put our own people in the field in the, in, our, in, in the way of a robot, let's do this. But now you do have mechanical lockouts, right? Like that's kind of standard. Yes, so that's right. You, you can actually lock out machine guarding. And that's one of the very important parts of building machinery is making sure that machine guarding is, is appropriate and is to the task, correct? Yeah, so you're saying locking it out. Yeah, but remember those, what you're putting a lock on is a device that feeds into a control system, right? Right. And the control system is programmed by somebody with a laptop. That control system has to be programmed from scratch effectively or, or used from a, from a template, a programming template. So in the event that somebody goes in and makes a small adjustment to a safety program, because remember that safety program is changing as the equipment's being started up. As you bring more and more devices or more zones of the, of the safety system online, you're going in constantly, the controls team is going in constantly and changing the safety program to add these other devices. In some cases, they have things bypassed. Mm-hmm. Because they can't run the rest of the machine if if you know that particular zone is not uh, even even wired yet. While locking out a machine is 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 great, you can't it, uh, in a lot of cases you can't set up a machine. You can't set up flow controls. You can't set up speeds and and coordinated motion if the machine's not powered up and moving, and at least not in a practical way. So you know there's a lot of bypassing that happens during the startup of a piece of equipment. And obviously, as a, as a manufacturer of automation equipment, we try to do our best to, you know, minimize that risk, make sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. You know, you put signs on the equipment, you, you cordon off particular areas of it. It is definitely a challenge. And, and again, with, with a lot of younger people coming in that don't necessarily have the experience of working on equipment, I think that adds another level of complexity to, to starting up automation equipment. We're going to revisit that in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, you've, you've probably seen some errors in approaches to safety in many of the factory tours that you've been on or all around the world. Yeah. You know, I, I would say one of the ones that I see probably the most often is when a piece of equipment is uh, originally concepted, either, you know, the customer has included a spec in their uh, RFQ or the applications team for the integrator that's gone out and, and uh, looked at the application, you know, they present a, a quote to the customer. One of the ways that seems, it, it seems like uh, everybody wants to try to cut costs in order to win the contract is to decrease the number of safety zones because each safety zone adds labor, time, materials, and cost to a project. So, for example, if you've got a a robotic uh, material handling system and maybe there's three or four robots handing uh, a part from, uh, you know, one robot to another to another, 
in a lot of cases, uh, the applications team will quote it as though it's just one big zone, one fence, one perimeter fence all the way around it. But in reality, that's not practical for a customer to operate it that way. And what seems to happen is either the customer doesn't have the money to properly zone a safety system or they wait until uh, you know, halfway through the build of the equipment or even during install before they say, hey, this doesn't work properly. Uh, you know, how are we supposed to go in and remove a part without stopping the whole line? I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, errors I see uh, is that there just there hasn't been enough uh, thought put into how the safety system needs to function in order for the machine to run properly and not have a lot of nuisance errors because somebody opens a gate and stops an entire machine and uh, that kind of stuff. I would say one of the other ones is the fact that it's unbelievable to me how many bypass keys are still used in industry today. And you go out in the factories and the customers have, you know, uh, setup guys or maintenance guys with bypass keys in their toolbox. Uh, and they put those in the gates in order to go in and set up pieces of equipment. And to me, that's a failure of how the how the machine was concepted, how the safety system was concepted. You know, if, you, if you've got a small cell where a robot's loading and unloading a CNC machine, there has to be provisions in the safety system to allow the robot to be moved into a safe position and locked out so that the setup person can go in and effectively set up the CNC machine. Now, that's a simple application, but you'd be amazed how many times I've seen uh, uh, maintenance guys have to put bypass keys into a, a, a piece of guarding so they can still go in and set up a CNC machine or a press or that kind of stuff. And just just to clarify for anybody in the audience who doesn't know what this is, so bypass bypass key is a special key that's only used to bypass a safety zone, like for a, a sensor or so. And it's like you say, it's kind of coveted by the toolmakers or programmers so that they can do exactly the wrong thing, which is. It would, they probably shouldn't have this key, right? Yeah, and you know, in in a lot of cases, it was a, a physical uh, key that would plug into a door switch on a guard, and effectively putting a, a bypass key into that switch uh, tells the machine that a door is effectively closed when it's not. Uh, or you know, there's there's other ways of of bypassing them. I've seen doors taken off. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, the whole switch is left on and the bypass keys taken off the door so that it simulates that the machine is, is closed. You know, I, I think one of the other errors I see fairly regularly out in the industry right now is that just safe stopping distance hasn't been taken into account for robots. They're running so close to the guards. You know, floor space is at a premium in, in, in most uh, customers' facilities, right? there, yep. The density of equipment going into these facilities is, is incredible and it's getting tighter and tighter all the time. You know, there there still needs to be adequate stopping time when robots need to, to decelerate and come to a safe stop and without hitting guards or hitting machines. And uh, it seems like that's, uh, sometimes that's forgotten and because customers aren't prepared to, to give up that extra six inches of space, they want them squeezed really tightly together. So I think, again, that's part of the initial cell layout. Uh, it, I think it's uh, I think it's just, just something that I think needs to have, have more focus on early on in the application. I agree with you. And I'm kind of thinking about this from a manufacturer's lens. Like 
maybe the manufacturer only builds a, an automation system in a year or something like that, and they're not really experts in safety on the other side. So what steps do you think end customers can take to improve their approach to safety or their approach to safety from the machine builder? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think having a functional specification in the application stage or very early in the design stage that deals with the safety side of the equipment head on instead of, you know, treating safety like it's a, a secondary thought that comes along later. And, you know, they, they leave it up to the hands uh, of the uh, PHSR uh, engineer that's going to come in and certify the equipment. Uh, that's great. But, you know, you can get a safety sign off from a PHSR engineer by having a single solid guard around your machine and uh, one one door switch that's locked to a, to a safety system. But that doesn't mean that machine's practical to use by the customer. And I think a lot of the times the customers just don't play an active enough role in how the safety system functionality is set up. So the integrator, you know, they do what they think is normal or, or practical uh, or sometimes most cost effective, still still being safe and not posing a safety hazard. But it doesn't mean it's functional. If you've got to have an operator going in and out of a door 10 times a shift to remove a part, there probably needs to be a better layout to that machine. Maybe they need a, 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 an exit conveyor where the robot can drop off a, a defected part or a, a rejected part instead of an operator having to go in and interface with that safety system uh, that number of times. You know, that comes down to the occurrence rating in a risk assessment is how often does this safety hazard pre uh, being presented to the operator? And if you can decrease the occurrence rate, then the system just inherently becomes safer. Jeff, uh, you've you've seen a lot of automation. Like, who uh, gets involved from the, the end customer side when it comes to safety? Do they typically have a safety officer or is it a project manager or, or who kind of signs off on it after the um, PHSR consultant? You know, it really depends on the size and sophistication of the customer. In the automotive industry, for example, a lot of cases, these facilities have their own safety coordinators or even safety program managers that are responsible for safety for the entire facility. And they'll bring a team of people down, usually an, uh, somebody responsible for ergonomics, somebody responsible for uh, production flow, uh, somebody responsible for overall uh, making sure that the equipment meets kind of the safety standards of the of the plant they're using the same safety switches has the same you know lockout tag out methodology used as the other ones but some customers are very uh immature from a safety or an integration standpoint and they really leave it up to the integrator and so those those ones actually tend to be the most challenging because you know they don't know what they don't know so you have to kind of guide those people along and make sure that they're aware of uh, interaction with an automated piece of equipment looks like. And you have to try to pull out of them how they're going to use the equipment, how they want to see the equipment, you know, be managed from the operators or, or maintenance standpoint as well. And I think that, you know, that it's it, to, to build a piece of equipment to run and make production parts is in reality, it's not that difficult to make a, a machine that's safe to maintain when a maintenance person has to go in and do different maintenance tasks on it is 
also to me that's the most challenging part of it it's not the the constant run mode that the machine's in in auto it's the recovery it's how do you get the the system to uh you know recover from a crash without somebody having to go in and and manually lift tooling up or move things around that potentially causes uh you know pinch hazards or fall hazards of pieces of equipment that kind of stuff it even gets a bit more complicated when you've got purchasing or supply chain on the customer side trying to negotiate tight pricing and tight margins on the, on the on the equipment and you say hey listen but we can't scrimp on safety you know so they're not thinking about safety uh from the purchasing side of the customer either right yeah and that's kind of back to that zoning discussion or point that i made jim that you know it, when when purchasing goes back and says hey we need to drop your price by 15 percent to be competitive one of the first things that the integrators do is they go back and they try to figure out how do they take cost out of the equipment but the customer has a very clear understanding of, of you know, the, the, the pieces they want in the machine. Uh, you know, it has to have this number of end of arm tools. The, the welding uh, apparatus has to be reliable or the nut runners or the drills or whatever it is. The safety zoning side of it is something that takes a fair amount of time and in reality doesn't affect the OEE of the equipment unless there is problems where the uh, machine is not very reliable, in which case it, it, it will because it, it, it takes longer to get the machine back up to a run state. And I liked your comment earlier about how do, how do we pull this information out of the customer, especially if it's a new customer, a new customer to automation. Uh, how do we know they don't, maybe they're, the parts that they supply you for runoff are going to be the same parts they're going to be using and if they get a lot of fails from those parts. So it really is a complicated um, a complicated discussion. So my question on this is, what's the answer? Like How, how can machine builders approach safety differently? I think it has to be a collaborative effort with the customer to start with. I think there has to be uh, more focus put on how does the customer need the safety system on the machine to to operate? Again, it, you know, it's not like it's just two wires going to a safety relay anymore. There's sometimes there's hundreds of devices on the safety network that are talking to each other at, at any one time. There's a lot of coordination. It, it, it seems to me like a safety system deserves its own functional specification outside of the standard functional spec that's normally written because the customers have a clear idea, depending on the sophistication of them, they have a clear idea as to what they want that uh, machine to do. What they don't typically do is put enough effort into defining to the integrator how they want the safety system to function. I think if they if they if there was more effort put into developing a safety system functional specification that includes, you know, what's what devices stop what zones, uh, what does recovery look like, what does maintenance look like for the for the uh, you know the situations where the it's not in a normal run mode or in even setup mode. Right. If they have to set up the machine, what do they have to do? Validation, quality checks, all of that comes into play with how operators have to inter- interface with the safety system. And it's everybody, right? It's it's like project managers, it's mechanical designers, it's applications engineers, and especially to your point earlier, but it's PLC programmers, right? Yeah. It, it is. It's, it's an entire team effort. The, the machine that the designers have to build a, a, a design that's safe, that gives enough area within the, the machine to program it. First of all, for the, the person that's doing the programming with a teach pendant in their hand, uh, they're touching up points. They have to design enough stopping time for the robot so they don't hit the guarding. 
And then, you know, the, uh, the electrical design team has to jump in and, and build the, the architecture for the safety system, the, the wiring system, the network configurations, the device selections. You know, you've got typically most of the companies I've worked with use a third party PHSR engineer. Uh, so there's a, there's an initial review that happens there to ensure that, you know, that nothing's been forgotten. And then, you know, it goes into manufacturing and the machine builders have to get involved and start building it. And they're involved in the, you know, the, the kind of the scariest part of it, which is before the safety systems even fully functional and tested and proven out, then obviously the PLC guys have to get involved. Uh, they have to get in and start. Uh, testing out the offline software goes gets dumped in, and so it it really is a, a whole team effort. And the project manager they have to ensure that the customer is brought along and and actively involved, so that there's no surprises for the customer. And what about machines going to faraway places? Like I, I know you wouldn't design maybe a machine different for Mexico versus uh, Canada versus USA, right? Yeah, you're right. We don't, we, we, you know, thankfully we, we live in a country that has a very, very stringent safety regulations with regards to building of equipment. The, the CSA standards are, are, you know, uh, some of the most stringent in the world. So we typically dev- design every machine to follow the same regulations and uh, meet the same standards. And in a lot of cases, the customers that are buying these pieces of equipment to ship to say Mexico, they want them designed and to actually have a uh, Ontario professional engineer certify them through the PHSR process because they want the ability to one day bring that machine from Mexico back into Canada. Okay, that makes sense. And can you explain for our audience, just in case, what, what PHSR is? Yeah, it's a pre-start health and safety review. And in Ontario, somebody that, a, a customer that, that runs a, a factory that makes parts, uh, they're responsible for ensuring that any piece of equipment that's brought into their facility has been signed off by a professional engineer to state that it meets the current safety regulations that are in place at that time. They have to have that done before the machine is put into production with operators. So for us, what it means is we use a PHSR company. Uh, we use multiple. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the customers have their own you know, preferred uh, PHSR customer or uh, vendors that they use will interface with them. So during the design stage, we send a, a rough layout of the equipment over to the PHSR engineer. We'll have a usually a small uh, discussion. Uh, uh, we walk through the, the layout functionality of the equipment and we look at any extraordinary risks that exist on the equipment so that we can deal with them from a design stage. And then when the machine's built and on our floor, we would have the PHSR engineer come back in and they would do safety checks, light curtain, uh, stopping time calculations, robot stopping time calculations. They look at the integrity of the safety system, ensure that the devices meet the requirements, that the design meets the requirements. And they also go through the safety software and ensure that the safety software is uh, appropriate for the task that it's trying to do. And then they will... At that time, before the pieces of equipment ships, uh, we would typically lock out the software. And at that point in time, when you lock it, there's a safety signature that's calculated in the safety processor. And the PHSR engineer will record that safety signature. That's It's got some kind of an algorithm that's based on time of day and 
everything else. So they record that so that later on in the future, if something ever happens on that piece of equipment, they can go in and take a look at the safety signature that's in the processor at that time. And they can tell whether or not somebody has gone in and tampered with the safety system. Well, that's a great overview. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Did we forget to talk about anything? Uh, I would say the only other thing that that I think is relevant from a safety standpoint in the industry today is uh, delivery schedules are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And, you know, what used to be a, a lead time on a piece of capital equipment might be 50 weeks. And a lot of cases now it's down to 30 or 32 weeks. And what that means for an integrator is a lot of the times they actually have to run two shifts for the controls team at the end to try to meet these, in some cases, unrealistic delivery schedules. So what that means is you're handing piece of equipment from one software team to another software team while you're trying to configure and verify a safety system. And I think that adds an even more uh, you know, a challenging level of uh, complications to that that part of the process. So I think I think these very very short delivery schedules are adding an undue risk on integrators on from a safety standpoint. Yeah, and I think the from my background experience in the automation industry, it's like let's just get started earlier, right? Let's get those yeah. design reviews <laughs> early. Let's start the safety systems or let's start the purchasing. Uh, conversations earlier, like uh, this can be solved, right? All these things. Hey, uh, when you're not automating, integrating, and keeping workers safe, what uh, what do you like to do? Do you have any hobbies? Uh, yeah, I got a few of them, Jim. I'm a I'm a huge dog lover, so I got a couple dogs that uh, keep me pretty busy, and then I'm a pretty avid fly fishing person. So those are probably the two things that I spend the bulk of my time with. Oh, that's great! And uh, thanks again for coming on. And how can people get a hold of you? Uh, they can reach me at. Uh, ethos Automation at uh, jeff.werner, W-E-R-N-E-R at ethosautomation.com, or they can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Our sponsor for this episode is Earhart Automation Systems. Earhart builds and commissions turnkey solutions for their worldwide clients. With over 80 years of precision manufacturing, they understand the complex world of robotics, automated manufacturing, and project management, delivering world-class custom automation on time and on budget. I'd like to acknowledge A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. They are the leading automation trade association for robotics, vision and imaging, motion control and motors, and the industrial artificial intelligence technologies. Visit automate.org to learn more. And I'd like to recognize Painted Robot. They build and integrate digital solutions. They're a web development firm that offers SEO, digital, social marketing, and can set up and connect CRM and other ERP tools to unify marketing, sales, and operations. And you can find them at paintedrobot.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with us at the Robot Industry Podcast, you can find me, Jim Beretta, on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Customer Traction Industrial Marketing. And I'd like to recognize my nephew, Chris Gray, for the music, Jeffrey Bremner for audio production, my business partner, Janet, and our sponsors, Earhart Automation Systems and Canova Robotics.